You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 29, To the Victor Go the Spoils. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time at the end of May, 1796. Napoleon and the Army of Italy were in Lombardy, in the center of northern Italy. After the conquest of the Duchy of Milan from the Habsburgs, a series of uncoordinated anti-French rebellions broke out all over the province. Napoleon put these down with a dose of measured, calculated brutality. The population remained restive, but the situation was now calm enough for Bonaparte to turn his attention back to the Austrians. With Milan more or less in French hands, the next prize on the horizon was the imposing fortress city of Mantua. Milan was the cultural and economic heart of northern Italy, but Mantua was its military center. The city lies at a perfect natural defensive position, in the elbow of a bend in the Mincio River, which flows south from Lake Garda in the foothills of the Alps. Through careful engineering, the Austrians had widened the sections of the river adjoining Mantua into two large artificial lakes— On its only landward side, the approach was partially obstructed by streams and marshland. On top of these strong natural obstacles, Mantua was also protected by powerful fortifications, built with the latest modern military engineering techniques to be resistant to artillery. There were enough supplies and accommodations in the city for over 10,000 soldiers to hold out for months, and perhaps as many as 500 cannon many of which were heavy siege guns. This was one of the most formidable positions in Europe. There was no question that the Austrians would fight hard for it. Clever maneuvering had forced them out of Milan without a shot fired, but Napoleon would have to take this stronghold the hard way, by siege or by storm. But before they could think about taking a crack at Mantua, the army of Italy would have to get across the river Mincio. And unfortunately for the French, Austrian commander Johann Beaulieu had used the lull in the action to carefully prepare a defensive line along the river. However, Beaulieu seems to have learned nothing from months of defeat and humiliation at the hands of Bonaparte. Once again, he strung out his forces along a wide front. Most of his units would be too far away to support each other if the French caught them flat-footed 
as Bonaparte had already done repeatedly during this campaign. Furthermore, the army of Italy had just been joined by 9,000 more men, while the badly depleted Habsburg forces had received no such reinforcements from Vienna. The Austrians were now outnumbered by nearly 50%. To cover the length of the River Mincio, Beaulieu had to spread his forces dangerously thin. There were only a few thousand men at every potential crossing point, and none left over to form a reserve. Since Beaulieu seemed not to have learned his lesson, Napoleon simply returned to the same strategies that had already proved effective in the previous phase of the campaign. He ordered diversionary maneuvers toward several crossing points to tie the Austrians down. At the town of Pesquiera on the shores of Lake Garda, the French even began buying boats from the locals to give the impression they planned to cross the lake itself. Meanwhile, Bonaparte assembled an elite force of around 6,000 men to attack his true target, a bridge at the village of Borghetto. Once again, the success of this mission would depend on speed and aggression, so he placed General Edward Jennings de Kilmaine in command, the fiery Irish revolutionary known within the army as Brave Kilmaine. Napoleon would also accompany the column himself. Bonaparte and Kilmaine arrived at Borghetto on May 29th. This tiny village was on the west side of the Mincio, connected by a bridge to the much larger town of Vallegio on the eastern bank. Borghetto was only lightly defended. The main Austrian force was in Vallegio, poised to contest the crossing of the bridge. This was the moment when the Austrians needed to be decisive. With 6,000 Frenchmen massed outside Borghetto, clearly preparing to force a crossing, every spare man in the Austrian army needed to be converging on Vallegio as quickly as possible. Beaulieu did issue orders to this effect, but was slow in doing so. Many of his subordinates objected that they could not spare the men. This was a natural response. Napoleon had ordered diversionary maneuvers all along the front so these Austrian commanders all had French troops active in their sectors. However, Beaulieu was the commander-in-chief. He could see the bigger strategic picture. It was his responsibility to overrule those objections, and he did not do so. The Austrians would enter the coming engagement critically under strength. The next morning, May 30th, Kilmaine's men stormed Borghetto. The Austrians had barely even bothered garrisoning the town. They only had a few dozen light cavalry west of the river, mostly to observe the French, rather than offer any serious resistance. When Kilmaine came roaring in, those cavalrymen took off the other direction as quickly as possible. Kilmaine's troops gave chase, but even the best French infantry couldn't outrun men on horseback. However, this futile gesture may have decided the battle. In their haste, several Austrian troopers did not make for the bridge, but rushed instead to points along the bank where they knew the river was low enough and simply galloped across. They did this in full view of the French, thus tipping them off to not one but several places where they might ford the river and bypass that kill zone at the narrow head of the bridge. Napoleon recognized the magnitude of this mistake and pounced immediately. He ordered an assault across the bridge, and sent a brigade to ford the river and outflank the enemy position. 
The Austrians fought hard, but they were outnumbered and outmaneuvered and soon fell back. The French took possession of Vallejo, and the rest of Kilmaine's force began streaming across the bridge, to be followed soon after by other components of the Army of Italy. Once again, Beaulieu had tried to hold Napoleon at a river crossing, and once again he had been outfoxed. Napoleon ordered his personal staff to unpack and prepare for an extended stay. Vallejo would be his headquarters for the coming phase of the campaign. In the Army of Italy, extended stay often meant only a few days, but everyone needed to catch their breath, including Napoleon himself, who found a suitable house, took off his boots, and laid down for a nap. Bonaparte was famous for his ability to sleep through almost anything, but he was about to get a rude awakening. The Austrians were not beaten yet. An energetic Habsburg cavalry commander, Prince Friedrich von Hohenzollern-Heckingen, believed the French were vulnerable. Just like their commander, most of Napoleon's troops seemed convinced the action was over. Their guard was down. Many were out of formation. Relatively few Republicans had crossed over to the east side of the river, and they had not expanded their bridgehead very far beyond Vallejo. A strong, rapid counterattack might push them back over the bridge and salvage the day for the Austrians. And so, Prince Friedrich rallied his men to charge on Vallejo. Just as he'd hoped, the French were caught totally by surprise. Most turned tail and ran as Austrian horsemen poured into the streets. Napoleon awoke to the sound of enemy troopers on the street outside and scrambled to save himself. He bolted out the back door and leapt over the garden wall. To stay out of sight, he made his escape through the yards of neighboring houses, jumping over each successive garden wall like some ludicrous steeplechase. He successfully evaded the Austrians, but lost one of his boots in the process. Unfortunately for Prince Friedrich, there simply were not enough Austrian soldiers in the area to follow up on the cavalry's success. The Army of Italy recovered from their shock, formed up, and pushed the Austrians back out of town. As Beaulieu pulled troops out of the line to reinforce his forces outside Vallejo, some of Napoleon's diversionary forces were able to get across the Mincio almost unopposed. The Austrian line was disintegrating. Beaulieu began organizing yet another retreat. These engagements along the Mincio on May 30th would come to be known as the Battle of Borghetto. The Army of Italy lost around 500 men killed, wounded, or captured, compared to around 6,000 Austrians. Once again, Beaulieu was also forced to leave behind valuable heavy equipment, including four cannon. The most important legacy of the battle came out of Napoleon's experience of nearly being captured. Bonaparte's staff was shockingly small by modern standards, and they were overwhelmingly staff officers and personal aides, the 18th century military equivalent of bureaucrats and interns. They didn't make a very impressive fighting force. There was no one specifically tasked with the safety of the army leadership and its sensitive documents and records. Napoleon had obvious selfish reasons to avoid capture, but it would have been a strategic disaster for the French cause as well as a personal calamity. 
the army would have been thrown into chaos, and the Austrians would have worked him over for vital intelligence. The army of Italy was small. Its success depended on speed and daring. Napoleon had learned that this style of warfare meant he needed to be close to the front, and all that meant he and his staff were always at risk. Clearly, the headquarters needed a dedicated unit of bodyguards. But there was a stumbling block. Officially, the formation of this type of personal bodyguard unit was strictly forbidden. As always, the authorities back in Paris were conscious of the example of ancient Rome, where the Republic had been snuffed out by the ambitions of overmighty generals. They worried such personal bodyguard units might develop bonds with their commanders that superseded any loyalty to the government. Of course, Napoleon was never one to let regulations get in the way of doing what he felt needed to be done. He founded the unit anyway and simply gave it a misleading name and job description. They would be known as the Guides. The Guides were recruited from the cavalry and on paper would serve as scouts, couriers, and pathfinders, under the direct command of army headquarters. The guides really did serve in those roles on occasion, but their primary mission was protecting the staff officers and senior leadership, particularly Bonaparte. It was a good cover because they had a built-in excuse to be hanging around headquarters. They weren't guarding anyone, of course, they just happened to be standing around the senior officers, perpetually waiting for orders that never came. To command such a sensitive unit, whose mission was technically against regulations, Napoleon needed someone whose loyalty was beyond question. His friend, Joachim Murat, suggested a perfect candidate, Captain Jean-Baptiste Bessier. Bessier was a cavalry officer straight out of central casting, tall, handsome, and a bit vain. He liked expensive clothes and still wore a powdered wig. He had already distinguished himself as a brave, capable officer, but probably more importantly for this appointment, he developed a reputation as a vocal fan of the commander-in-chief. He was also honest and guileless to a fault. In short, this was a person who was extremely unlikely to use his position of chief bodyguard to scheme against Napoleon and he never did. In time, the guides would grow and evolve into the vaunted imperial guard of the French Empire. Bessier's career grew with the organization. He remained its commander until his death in 1813, at the rank of Marshal of France. He would also soon join the small circle of Napoleon's personal friends, although their relationship was always tinged by hero worship. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Beaulieu took the remains of his army north, across the Adige River and into the foothills of the Alps. After two months of defeat and withdrawal, their morale was shattered. Entire battalions of several hundred men went absent without leave en masse just to get a break from the relentless army of Italy. The only significant body of Austrian troops remaining in the Po Valley was the garrison of Mantua, which had now swollen to over 12,000 men after absorbing stragglers and isolated units that were cut off by Napoleon's advance. On July 4th, sentries on the ramparts of Mantua could see French soldiers digging entrenchments. By July 15th, the city was sealed off. The struggle for Mantua had begun. This would be the focal point of the war in Italy for the next eight months. The Austrian retreat over the Adige represented a milestone in the campaign. Beaulieu's army now entered a region which had been a Habsburg possession since the Middle Ages. The townspeople encountered by the Austrian soldiers spoke German, not Italian. Lombardy may have been Habsburg territory in a legal sense, but for the first time in the campaign, the Austrian forces in Italy had been pushed into what really felt like their home turf. Vienna took notice of this milestone as well. The Austrian war effort was managed by the Imperial War Council, which, over centuries, had evolved from a kind of medieval roundtable into a proto-ministry of war, dominated by professional bureaucrats. The council operated largely on consensus, which meant that things generally moved pretty slowly. But the problem of Bonaparte had been at the top of their agenda for weeks. As the commander-in-chief presiding over this unfolding disaster in Italy, Beaulieu was already on thin ice with the council. His sorry performance at Borghetto finally pushed them beyond the limit of their patience. Vienna was finally prepared to take Bonaparte seriously, and that meant sending a new army and a new commander. On June 18, 1796, Field Marshal Count Dagobert von Wurmser received orders to redeploy his 25,000-man army from southern Germany to northern Italy, where he was to relieve the besieged garrison of Mantua at all costs. Wurmser was one of the grand old men of the Austrian military, literally as well as figuratively. At 72 years of age, he was old enough to be Napoleon's grandfather. Wurmser had been born into an aristocratic military family and entered the service at his father's side as a teenager. He was one of the last remaining commanders in the Austrian army who had served as a senior officer in the wars against Frederick the Great. There was still a mystique around those conflicts, particularly in Austria. The struggle against Frederick's Prussia was the formative moment for the Austrian military. If you're American, imagine an old general who had fought at Okinawa or Normandy, still hanging on in the 1970s alongside colleagues who had only fought in smaller, less prestigious conflicts in Korea or Vietnam. Wurmser had been a cavalryman before he moved to senior command, and a very good one. 
As he aged, that devil-may-care attitude that was common in the cavalry soured into a broader cantankerousness, which stung his own staff almost as often as the enemy. He was also going deaf and refused to admit it, which couldn't have helped his temperament. As he prepared to march into Italy, Wurmser's health was already beginning to fail. In 14 months, he would be dead. Still, when his men entered battle, the old field marshal had his staff help him into the saddle and would ride out to get close to the action. In coming episodes, we'll even see him take personal command of cavalry charges. Some accounts of this campaign treat Wurmser almost like comic relief. I understand why an author might be tempted to do so. He was a prickly old man who was constantly yelling at everybody. There is something a bit pathetic about a frail 72-year-old grasping at one last taste of glory, only to be bested by a man young enough to be his grandson. He's almost a Don Quixote figure. But we should not underestimate Wurmser. Napoleon certainly didn't. He had his faults and foibles, but all in all, Wurmser was a good general. During his time in the Rhineland, he had dealt the French some serious defeats. And I think there is something a bit noble in the notion of a man hanging on well past his prime to do a job none of his younger colleagues could manage. The worst you can say about Wurmser is that he was old-fashioned. Warfare had changed, and as you might expect of a man in his 70s, Wurmser had done little to adapt. He used much the same approach to fight the Republicans in 1796 that he'd watched his father use against the Prussians in the 1750s. He was also restricted by very explicit orders from the Imperial War Council. Wurmser's mission was the relief of Mantua, not the reconquest of Lombardy, not the destruction of Bonaparte's army, Mantua and Mantua alone. With such a massively important stronghold under threat, Vienna's insistence is perhaps understandable. However, field commanders need some freedom to improvise, to seize opportunities where they find them, and achieve their objectives indirectly. Some military historians have argued that Wurmser was shackled by his overly strict orders to maintain focus on Mantua. Perhaps he should have borrowed a page from Napoleon's book and simply defied Vienna, but that degree of boldness is exceedingly rare. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. It would be late July by the time Wurmser and his army traversed the narrow Alpine passes, and they would not be ready to challenge Napoleon until early August. Only around 5,000 men were required to maintain the siege lines outside Mantua. And so, for the first time in months, most of the army of Italy didn't really have anywhere to be. Napoleon decided the time was right to focus on the promises he had made to the Directory, to project French power southward into central Italy, and most importantly, while he was there, to collect as much of its wealth as possible to send back to Paris. There were strategic and geopolitical rationales behind this move as well. Most of the states in this region were officially neutral, but many of them enjoyed a cozy relationship with the British that, in the eyes of the Directory, stretched the definition of neutral beyond the breaking point. 
the British Mediterranean fleet was operating out of bases along the west coast of Italy, particularly the town of Livorno in Tuscany, which by 1796 was effectively the de facto home port for the fleet. This made the coastal towns of central Italy an important conduit for British commerce, intelligence, and diplomatic influence. And, of course, this was the backyard of the Vatican. Pope Pius VI was a legal sovereign over much of this territory, and wielded tremendous informal influence over nominally independent neighboring states as well. Even in this era, when the Pope ruled over a large area as a temporal prince, it would have been considered unseemly for the Papal States to actually join in the military coalition against France. However, the Pope was a fiery, inveterate opponent of the Revolution. Decorum may have prevented him from joining in the military struggle, but the Vatican was at the forefront of the ideological and political struggles against the French Republic. If Napoleon could thwart British and papal influence, it would be an important strategic victory for France, as well as being lucrative. These would be low-risk operations. There were four secular independent states in central Italy. The exact geography isn't that important, but from north to south, they were the Duchy of Parma, the Duchy of Modena, the Republic of Lucca, and the Grand Duchy of Tuscany. None of them were large enough to maintain more than a token military force. They had always relied on their relationships with Austria to defend against foreign threats. The rest of the region was under the jurisdiction of the Pope. The reason you generally hear these holdings referred to in plural as the Papal States is because this was in no way a single unified realm. The Pope ruled directly over Rome itself and some of the surrounding countryside but most of his domain was semi-autonomous. The various papal cities, towns, and provinces all had their own unique feudal arrangements with their sovereign, which is a big reason the papal states were arguably the worst governed country in Western Europe. Unlike his neighbors, the pope actually did have a real military, but it too was among the worst in Europe, and far too small to seriously challenge the army of Italy. In short, with their Habsburg protectors gone, the riches of central Italy were ripe for the taking. As Napoleon's columns marched south in the late spring and early summer of 1796, the defenseless cities and towns they encountered had little choice but to open their gates and accede to French demands. Duke Ferdinand of Parma was forced to pay an indemnity of two million francs. He got off easy compared to his neighbor, Duke Ercole III of Modena, who paid over seven million. At Bologna, one of the largest cities in the Papal States, Napoleon squeezed two million francs from the city government and another two million from the local aristocracy. These are just a few examples, and as always, these monetary payments are on top of the requisitions of food, horses, clothing, military supplies, and sometimes even wine. Most of these supplies were desperately needed by the army and immediately distributed. Most of the gold went straight to Paris. Napoleon knew his independence from the government was bought with loot, and so he did not take his responsibility to pay the directory lightly. 
However, as the campaign grew ever more profitable, the temptation to pursue personal enrichment became too great for many officers. Napoleon walked a fine line with this burgeoning corruption. He officially discouraged the practice. His illegal payments to the army were made partially to reduce the temptation to skim, steal, or play the black market. However, he was ultimately a realist, and he understood that with so much money and merchandise flowing through the army, he had to tolerate a certain level of corruption, or risk alienating his men. Ironically, it was two of Napoleon's best officers who proved to be the worst offenders. Generals Augereau and Messena were absolutely shameless in their pilfering. In a way, you can't blame them. Both men came from poor backgrounds and lacked connections in Paris. They had fought well for years with little reward, eking out a Spartan existence on the front while the directors back in Paris lived like sultans. But their corruption became so egregious that they earned reprimands from Napoleon and tarnished their otherwise sterling reputations. General Augereau's baggage train became a euphemism within the army for illicit plunder. In 1798, Messena's own troops would complain to the Directory that their commander's reputation for greed was jeopardizing their mission. They wrote in a petition to the government, quote, We soldiers have not forgotten the extortions and robberies Messena has committed wherever he has been invested with command, end quote. Bonaparte was more than capable of violating army regulations, or even breaking the law, but he generally only did so when he felt he was pursuing some higher purpose. He felt contempt for those who did so purely for personal gain. That said, even Napoleon was not above helping himself to a little taste of this unbelievable windfall reaped by the army. According to one estimate, he pocketed around 3 million francs during the first Italian campaign. That's a pretty modest sum compared to what others were taking, and what he likely could have gotten away with as commander-in-chief, but it was more than enough to make him a wealthy man. Of course, Napoleon being Napoleon, much of this money went to his family, and most of what was left over went into his personal slush fund. He was never particularly interested in hoarding wealth, or blowing it on luxuries. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At the Vatican, Pope Pius was getting nervous. Facing no resistance, the French were approaching Rome with alarming speed. The papal army was a joke, and the chance of rescue by the Austrians or the British was getting more distant by the day. The Holy Father was contemplating the unthinkable, coming to terms with the French heretics. However, he remained unwilling to offer diplomatic recognition to the Directory, and so he dispatched the Spanish ambassador to the Vatican to Bologna to meet with Bonaparte, as a kind of 
unofficial official representative of the Pope. Napoleon was willing to offer a truce and to spare the Papal States any further requisitions. But he knew he held all the cards, and so his terms were severe. Bonaparte demanded that the Vatican pay an indemnity worth 21 million francs, to be rendered in a combination of gold, silver, and supplies, and that the town of Ancona would be handed over to a French garrison, thus giving the Republic access to the Adriatic Sea. French troops would be allowed unlimited free passage over papal territory. Lastly, he sent the Pope an itemized list of cultural treasures to be handed over to France, including over 100 works of art and 500 rare manuscripts. And all that was only Bonaparte's price for a temporary armistice between France and the Vatican, a ceasefire. It would be followed by further negotiations for a formal peace treaty, thus leaving the door open to even further concessions. Even with the wealth of the Church at his disposal, this was an eye-popping sum for Pope Pius. Still, his only other option was allowing the French to take what they wanted by force. He agreed. The clause in the armistice about cultural treasures is worth our particular attention. For reasons we've already discussed at length, Supplies and cash were always first and second on the Army of Italy's list when they conquered a new territory. However, as Napoleon's conquests piled up, and the process of looting and indemnities became more systematized, this type of artistic and intellectual plunder became increasingly important. In early May, Napoleon wrote to the Directory to request a team of artists and scholars to help the army track down artifacts of aesthetic or scholarly significance. In fact, the Directory was already in the process of establishing just such an institution. It would be called The Government Commission for the Search for Scientific and Artistic Objects in the Countries Conquered by the Armies of the French Republic. They were not big on brevity. I'll simply refer to it as the Commission from here on out. Today, many intellectuals would probably consider anyone who joined such a project to be a shameless sellout. But the dynamics were different in late 18th century France. Many of the country's most prominent intellectuals joined. Painters, sculptors, mathematicians, and scientists. It might be surprising that so many eminent people would set aside their principles to sign up for what amounted to a giant protection racket and looting operation. But the commission wasn't really controversial within France. That's not how they saw it. Remember, from the perspective of a radical Enlightenment intellectual, France was the only truly free place on earth. Paris was not only the capital of the country, it was the capital of the revolution, the epicenter of a new age, the flame of a torch that would bring light to all of humanity. The art and artifacts they brought to the city were not stolen, they were liberated. This was the revolutionary ethos applied to high culture. They believed the intellectual heritage of mankind belonged to all of mankind. It was not to be carved up in private collections of princes and plutocrats, but gathered together in the world's cultural capital, where it would be under the protection of a democratic government, and studied and maintained by the best experts in the field. 
For obvious reasons, the priceless art treasures seized by the Commission are the most famous, or perhaps most notorious, part of its mission. But its mandate was much broader than just art. It also pursued scientific and technical knowledge. Botanical samples and reports from scientists, engineers, and mathematicians also made their way back to Paris under the auspices of the Commission. It all sounds quite nice. But, of course, to anyone who didn't share this very specific worldview, it all sounded like a very long-winded excuse to steal and take trophies. The peoples of Europe had never voted to grant Paris the status of cultural capital for the whole continent. Revolutionary France had simply granted itself the right to gather the treasures of Europe, without doing much to convince or even explain to anyone what it was doing or why. Many average people in the lands conquered by the French were proud that their town or some nearby city was host to a great masterpiece. Even if the work in question was permanently behind closed doors in the residence of some prince or aristocrat, a famous piece of art could be a focal point of civic pride, or even a symbol of the city itself. If foreign soldiers came to town and hauled away such a precious object, it engendered bitterness. They might have said that the town's treasure was now liberated and belonged to the people, but for an Italian of modest means, it was little consolation that you could now theoretically trek hundreds of miles to Paris and go see your town's pride and joy displayed as one more trophy of war among hundreds. As always, the lofty ideals of the revolution came with a heavy dose of French chauvinism and didn't always translate well from the salons and pamphlets to real life. But I don't want to give the impression that the commission was a complete failure. Their work did help burnish Paris's reputation as a cultural and intellectual center, a reputation that persists even today. And that sense of cultural superiority was becoming a big part of the nascent French national identity. The government told the people of France that the revolution had made their country the world's foremost defender and patron of the arts and sciences. That made the wars of the republic into more than great power contests. They were crusades for civilization and scientific progress. This element of revolutionary ideology struck a particular chord with Napoleon. After all, he was a bit of an armchair intellectual himself and a fervent believer in progress and enlightenment. No Republican general was as energetic in pursuing the treasures researched by the Commission as Bonaparte. He was eager to connect his own public image with this mission, and would retain it as an important part of France's official ideology after he took power. By the end of the First Italian Campaign, around 200 major paintings and 100 sculptures had been confiscated and taken to France, along with thousands of rare books and manuscripts. Shortly after the French conquest, Duke Ferdinand of Parma offered Napoleon a million francs in return for the Madonna of St. Jerome, a painting by the Renaissance master Correggio. This masterpiece had been commissioned and painted in Parma over 200 years ago, and had been a great source of local pride ever since. But Napoleon refused the Duke outright. The army could always get more money, 
but the prestige gained from hanging the painting in Paris, courtesy of General Bonaparte and the Army of Italy, was priceless. Napoleon was on top of the world, and yet he chose to begin a personal letter dated June 15, 1796, with a melodramatic declaration, quote, My life is a perpetual nightmare, end quote. The letter was to his wife, Josephine. Her absence and indifference were beginning to wear on him. The letter continues, quote, An evil premonition oppresses me. I see you no longer. I have lost more than life, more than happiness, more than my rest. I am almost without hope. Forgive me, my dear. The love which you have inspired in me has left me bereft of reason. I shall never find it again. It is an illness for which there is no cure. I would confine myself merely to seeing you, to pressing you to my heart for a few hours, and then dying with you. End quote. So, pretty heavy stuff. Now it's worth reminding ourselves that the conventions of a romantic letter between husband and wife were quite different in 1796. It was expected to go over the top and dramatize one's emotions. But even with that caveat, Napoleon was clearly not taking their separation well. Napoleon was closer to Joseph than perhaps anyone, and I think his letters to his older brother give us our clearest glimpse at his true thoughts and feelings, unencumbered by performance or pretense. Here's what he wrote to Joseph around this period. Quote, My friend, I am in despair. My wife... All that I love in the world is ill. I can no longer think straight. You are the only man on this earth for whom I have a true and constant affection. Reassure me. Tell me the truth. You know I have never been a lover, that Josephine is the first woman who I have adored. Her illness brings me despair. Everyone abandons me. I am alone, prey to my fears and misfortune. If she is well, let her make the trip. I ardently desire her to come. I love her madly, and I cannot continue apart from her. If she no longer loved me, I would have nothing left on earth. End quote. So I think it's safe to say he really was hurting. His letters to Josephine were slightly more dramatic, but not inauthentic. One more thing I'd point out. Reassure me and tell me the truth are often contradictory requests, particularly when it comes to matters of the heart. His concern is somewhat understandable. Josephine barely wrote to him. At the time of that first letter, it had been over three weeks since Napoleon received any mail from his wife. She told him she was ill and too exhausted to write more frequently. This was almost certainly just an excuse but Napoleon had no way of knowing she wasn't on death's door. Then her story changed. She was supposedly pregnant and preoccupied with her condition. This seems unlikely to have been true, but again, it gave Napoleon reason to worry about his wife's health and well-being. In some of his letters, he also hinted at darker concerns. Napoleon and Josephine had barely known each other before their wedding and he was surely aware of her infamously long list of lovers and trysts. 
What if she neglected to write him because some other man had captured her attentions? In his increasingly desperate letters, Napoleon threatened to commit suicide in this scenario. Quote, I would quit a life in which the most virtuous of women had deceived me. End quote. Perhaps hyperbole, but he did write it. And the truth was, he was right to be so concerned. Back in Paris, Madame Bonaparte was quite openly carrying on a close friendship with a handsome young cavalry officer, Lieutenant Hippolyte Charles. It's never been confirmed that the two were sexually involved, but the way they conducted themselves in public was consistent with two people in a romantic relationship, and considered scandalous by many in their circle. If they weren't sleeping together, they certainly were close enough to give people the impression otherwise. There's some speculation that Charles may have been a homosexual, but even if he and Josephine never consummated whatever relationship they had, it was still inappropriately intimate by the standards of the day. Josephine knew that, which is why she hid the truth from Napoleon. By late June, Josephine finally ran out of excuses, and finally, reluctantly, packed her bags for Milan. According to some sources, it was Napoleon's patron and her former lover, Paul Barra, who finally talked her into it. Barra wasn't exactly a defender of the sanctity of marriage, but he had an interest in keeping Napoleon happy and free from scandal. As you might expect, Josephine did not travel light. It took a convoy of six carriages to carry all of her baggage, servants, and companions. Among the party was none other than Lieutenant Hippolyte Charles. It takes some serious nerve to bring your boyfriend along on a road trip to meet your husband. Whatever else you can say about Josephine, she certainly didn't lack nerve. On July 10th, Napoleon greeted her at the Palazzo Serbelloni in Milan, a huge, opulent mansion just outside the old city, which had been expropriated from an aristocratic family. When he'd first arrived in Milan, Napoleon had taken up residence in slightly more modest accommodations, an apartment in the Archbishop's palace. But he knew how much his wife appreciated luxury and clearly wanted to impress her. I'm sure Josephine was unsure of how this reunion would go. It was clear from Napoleon's letters that he missed her desperately, but also that he suspected she wasn't being honest with him. As it turned out, she needn't have worried. Her husband greeted her as warmly as ever, and she moved her prodigious baggage into the palace. Over the next few days, Napoleon was so affectionate with his wife that his subordinates wrote that they were uncomfortable in the couple's presence. All seemed well, but the dynamics of the relationship changed drastically the day Josephine arrived in Milan. As she entered the decadent Palazzo Serbelloni and saw her husband, the undisputed master of this great ancient city, treated with the deference due to a great conqueror, it occurred to her that this man she had so recently referred to dismissively as Little Bonaparte had become quite a formidable figure. Power was a common denominator among many of Josephine's past lovers. Clearly, it was an attribute she valued in men and her husband now had it in spades. 
But while Josephine found herself warming to Napoleon, he had begun to see her in a different light, too. Napoleon would always remain in love with Josephine, but he would never quite get over his bitterness at these disastrous first few months of marriage. His naive view of romance was hardening into something much more cynical. He still doted on Josephine and would continue to do so for years, but he also started opening her mail and had already taken at least one Italian mistress. He quickly figured out the truth about her relationship with Lieutenant Charles. How could he not? Josephine had practically spelled it out for all to see. From what we know, he never confronted her directly, not yet, but his subsequent letters to her make it quite clear he knew what was going on. Quote, I have been assured that you have known that gentleman for a long time, and very well. If that were the case, you would be a monster. End quote. Napoleon was quite fond of good-natured teasing with his close confidants, and I'm sure if you could ask him, he'd tell you that's all this was. But it's clear he held his wife's infidelity over her head. For her part, Josephine did much the same with Napoleon's never-ending train of mistresses, with whom he was no more discreet. The marriage between Napoleon and Josephine was not all bad. In spite of everything, through all their worst dust-ups, he always loved her. I'm not sure whether Josephine ever really loved him back. She may not have been psychologically capable. But she did develop some genuine warm feelings for her husband, and Napoleon would soon forge a strong paternal relationship with her son Eugène, which surely helped. But this unhealthy dynamic that developed after Josephine's arrival in Milan would set the tone for the rest of their marriage. The disparity in affection between the two was now out in the open. Each had wounded the other. In the years to come, there would be constant fights and reconciliations, but they never quite managed to wipe the slate clean and let go of the undercurrent of bitterness that began in this summer of 1796. It was a complicated moment in their relationship, but it only lasted two days. Soon after Josephine's arrival, Napoleon got word that fresh Austrian units were headed south through the Alps. Field Marshal Wurmser would soon arrive in Italy. Napoleon left Milan to prepare the army to face a new opponent. But we'll have to leave things there for this episode. Next time, we'll see Napoleon take on the cranky old cavalryman, as the struggle for Mantua begins in earnest. For the first time in our story, Napoleon will be on the defensive. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.